Father, we do thank you for this day that you've given to us to come apart from all of the cares of our week, from the enjoyments, from the recreations, from the stresses, from all of the chaos, and to come and sit with you, to be refreshed in our relationship with you and strengthened for the coming week. Bless us in this time of Sunday school, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So we're continuing in our study of the confession, uh, and we're continuing with chapter 28, which is baptism, uh, and it's found on page 936 in your hymnal, and we're going to be picking up with section 3. Now up to this point, I want to emphasize that we've been focusing on areas of agreement where all evangelical Christians agree. Uh, they All evangelical Christians agree that baptism was instituted by Jesus Christ as a permanent uh, sign and seal for the church age. Uh, so, so we're all on the same page on that in sections 1 and 2 of chapter 28. Uh, section 2 is the outward element to be used as water, and it is to be done in the name of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, by a minister of the gospel lawfully ordained, lawfully called thereto. Now we start to get into some of the differences, some of the things that separate Reformed uh, believers, or, I, yeah, this is a controversy <laughs> Uh, in, in certain egghead circles, uh, we don't like to talk about Baptists as Reformed. Uh, they're Calvinistic. But typically, a Reformed position doesn't just include Presbyterianism. It includes uh, Anglicans, uh, traditional Anglicans. Uh, J.C. Ryle is an example. He very much considered himself Reformed. Uh, it, it would consider, it would include, uh, many Congregationalists. John Owen was a Congregationalist. He very much, uh, would consider himself to be Reformed. But the Reformed label typically is attached to those who practice infant baptism. Uh, it lately, in the last 15, 20 years, has become attached to Baptists that are not Arminian, uh, that are Calvinistic. So, so Baptists that hold to the five points of Calvinism often will label themselves Reformed, Reformed Baptists. Uh, so if I slip up, uh, understand, this is, <laughs> this is a long historic debate and it is something that is sort of I don't intend to exclude my Calvinistic Baptist brothers and sisters when I say the Reformed position uh, on infant baptism. Well, that's a great question. Why, why 
what is the utility of labels? Um, and I guess you could expand that all the way out to say, what is the utility of creeds and confessions? Because they are labels to a degree. I, I hold to the Westminster Confession. Someone else holds to the three forms of unity. You know, these are labels. It's a big tent. Right. So, so typically that label is, is a quick way of identifying a subset of... Absolutely. Well, no, I would not say we think we are. Uh, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> okay, well, not me. Uh, if if anybody if anybody think so, so one of the utilities of the confession is we have written into our our church bylaws how to amend it because we acknowledge that the confession is not scripture. Uh, we acknowledge that there are places that it may very well need amendment. And we've done that four or five times uh, in, in the history, particularly of American Presbyterianism. Uh, the latest was in the late 1800s when we added a chapter on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and when, so, yeah, anyway... The, the confession is not scripture by any stretch. It's just a way of saying, this is what I believe scripture teaches. And, and I think that's just us being honest. I think, I think we ought to, we ought to put ourselves up front, put ourselves out there. This is what I believe the scripture teaches so that people can know if, uh, if I'm saying something that they think is off, uh, the mark, then they can challenge me and I can, you know, those sorts of things. But yeah, at the end of the day, labels labels are just shortcuts. Uh, they're, they're ways for us to say, I believe that all mankind is born dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, I believe that God chooses on the basis of his own sovereign will, not because I did something good or, or because he foresaw that I would choose him, so he chose me first. Uh, I believe that Christ's atonement accomplished absolutely everything uh, that it was intended to accomplish for God's sheep. Uh, I believe that when the Holy Spirit brings me to life, uh, that I am irresistibly drawn uh, to that. And I believe that when... Christ Jesus has purchased me, uh, that his promise that of all the Father gives to him, he will not lose any, uh, means that I will be preserved uh, through all eternity. I can say all those things, or I can just say I'm reformed. <laughs> uh, and, and that is understood that those things are included. But, but at any rate, let, let's, let's uh, move on with, with this chapter, which is section 3 is where we start having some departure 
within the church of Christ, uh, and that is that dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. So, immersion... And, and this is a key phrase. That it is not necessary, but sprinkling and pouring are right ways of doing it. Means immersion is included as a right way of doing it. Immersion is not the only way, uh, is what the confession is saying. That, that immersion uh, is one way, but that pouring and sprinkling are also proper. So, so it's at this point that you start, and, and it's interesting, as I've interacted, I, I have a number of very dear friends, very close brothers, uh, who are committed Baptists, they're ministers, uh, and, and they kind of struggle with what do we do with a Presbyterian like myself uh, who moves into the area and wants to join the church because that's the best gospel preaching church uh, that's around. Am I allowed to become a member there? And... The, the Baptists that are kind of more uh, intentional about this will not allow me to become a member uh, because I have not had baptism properly administered to me in their view. Uh, just I was baptized as a baby. Uh, my parents were Presbyterians, and I am a product of covenant baptism. But... And and so we just ran into this uh, not too long ago when two of our daughters uh, moved uh, from the local area and were looking for a church home that was closest to where they were. And I've got a dear friend who's a Reformed Baptist minister in the area they were living in, and I encouraged them to go there, and they loved it. They thought the preaching was glorious. They thought, you know, this this is... Uh, I, I tease the individual and I call him uh, my, my Baptist brother, my evil twin. Uh, so he and I, very similar personalities, very similar preaching style, very healthy congregation. But my daughters could not join uh, because they had been baptized as infants. And so he actually asked them to wait a little bit because he and the leadership were going through the process of what they call open membership. And if you are familiar with blog posts and the internet and all that sort of stuff, that's something that some of the quote-unquote Reformed Baptists have really been pushing is the idea of open membership because it's a recognition that you've got all of these Presbyterians that are God-fearing, walking with the Lord, members of the church, yada, yada, and their ecclesiology does not allow them to become members uh, of that local church. Uh, so, 
So this is something that is going on as we speak within the, the Reformed Baptist community is what do we do with Presbyterians that, that move into our area because they've not been immersed. Uh, now, the, the thing doesn't go the other way. Uh, this is something I always like to kind of poke my brothers at. Uh, us Presbyterians are the liberal ones. We're the, <laughs> we're, we're the accepting ones. Uh, if you've been baptized by immersion, great. Uh, I've actually practiced, uh, we've, we performed, I think, two uh, baptisms by immersion uh, here at Sterling. That was awkward. Uh, that water was cold. <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, it, it, it is an appropriate mode, but it is not the only mode. So, so that's the first thing that we're noting here. And again, this is going back to we do have a fundamental disagreement about what it is that baptism signifies. And this is uh, where we get into, uh, really, in section four, which is adult believers are the appropriate, or, you know, adult believers should be baptized. Uh, if, if you are an adult and you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you should be baptized. Uh, and so we all agree on that. All Christians agree on that. Here's where we differ, and that is section 4 says, not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So there's a couple of important scripture passages that I think shed some light on this. But first, we've got to step back. When we, when we begin to look at the question of infant baptism, we need to step back and, and say, what is baptism signifying? Is it signifying personal faith in Jesus Christ? Or is it signifying the Holy Spirit cleansing and identification with Christ and specifically, what is the relationship of the New Testament to the Old? Are they one unfolding drama, uh, which, spoiler alert, uh, that's kind of the focus of the sermon today, <laughs> is, is the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, and how this is, is right there from the beginning, a drama that, that finds its greatest clarity in the work of Jesus Christ. If we are looking at these two entities, the Old Testament and the New Testament, as essentially one church, and so if you'll recall, way back when we started with this, we said the, the confession builds on itself. It, it's a, it, it's a very systematic building that assumes that you've gotten the other portions of it correct. So that's why we start with the very basic 
what are the books of the Bible? Uh, so, so we're starting with these just basic, basic building blocks. In the chapter on the church, the confession refers to Old Testament Israel as the church under age. Uh, and then the New Testament is the church in its maturity. Uh, and so we're seeing one people of God throughout. And so therefore, we look to what was the standard of admittance to the Old Testament church? Who are the people that were admitted? And it's the parents and their circumcised sons. And so if the infants are brought into this visible communion, and, and later on uh, the, the issue of circumcision becomes such an identifying marker for the people of Israel that they are the people of circumcision. Uh, you've got the party of circumcision, which is later in the New Testament when the New Testament Jewish believers are trying to say that the New Testament Gentile believers need to be circumcised and they need to keep the dietary laws. Uh, that's the party of circumcision. Uh, so that circumcision really becomes this identifying mark of the Old Testament people of God. Now, a passage which, and, and I've, I've raised this a number of times with my Reformed Baptist uh, brothers, and they don't like this as a proof text. I'm not bringing this as a proof text. <laughs> I'm bringing it to make the point that this is not some outlandish idea that we cooked up. Could someone read Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15? Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Six through fifteen. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, but then abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one patient captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirit of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole Uncircumcision of your flesh, God had made alive together with him, having forgiven all, us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in them. So Paul is speaking to a group of Gentiles. These are people in Laodicea. Uh, he's, he's speaking to a group of Gentiles, 
And he tells these Gentiles that they were circumcised with a circumcision not made by hands. And that circumcision that they have been circumcised with, he says, is what? It's baptism. So Paul... says this circumcision that the Gentiles have participated in is how they are to view their baptism. That's what baptism did, is it circumcised them in a circumcision made without hands. Now, again, my Reformed Baptist brothers don't like us playing placing a a significant amount of emphasis on this text because they'll say this text alone doesn't prove infant baptism. That's not what we raise the text in order to prove. We raise the text in order to prove that Paul makes a connection between circumcision and baptism. That's all I'm saying. Paul makes a connection between circumcision and baptism. Now here is, I think, the therefore from that. I don't think anybody can disagree. Paul makes a connection between circumcision and baptism. If there is this dramatic change in how we view the children of believers. In the Old Testament, children of believers were included in the covenant community. And supposedly, in the New Testament, children of believers are not included in the covenant community. If that was true, then Paul is being deliberately misleading when he makes these connections. Paul is setting up something that is deliberately misleading us. And I would say the same with Ephesians chapter 6. Why is Paul addressing children generally as members of the church? Why is he telling them that they have responsibilities as members of the body of Christ? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. If the children are not part of the covenant community, if the children are not part of the visible church, then Paul is being deliberately disingenuous in doing that. I want to hammer that point. Oh, that's absolutely true. (laughs) That's right. So all of that, yes, I agree. But Paul is not saying, you're no longer circumcised, you're now baptized. Paul is saying, this circumcision is the one and the same. 
Well, circumcision and baptism in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, <laughs> these, these are the things. But let me, let me go on real quickly to another point, because I do hopefully want to close out this chapter. Um, could someone also read for me 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16? Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 16. And this is where Paul is dealing with marriage and particularly with what do you do if one spouse becomes a believer and the other spouse is not. Seven. Twelve to sixteen. So that word made holy is an Old Testament word. It's sanctified. Uh, things in the tabernacle were sanctified. They're set apart for God's use. That's what made holy is. It's something that is set apart for God. And so the question is, in what sense is, first off, an unbelieving spouse set apart for God? And secondly, in what sense are the children of believing spouses set apart for God? And I think he answers the first question right there in the passage. The the unbelieving spouse is set apart for God, and how do you know that maybe without a word you may win that unbelieving spouse to God? And so you yourself as a believer, if you even if you are the only believer in your nuclear family, uh, you yourself, as a believer, make that place holy. You make that place set aside for God. So this is a family dynamic. It's a community dynamic, and it clearly extends to the children, that the children are set apart for God. Now, this makes perfect sense in a covenant concept, in, in, a, in an understanding of the nature of the visible church is an outgrowth from the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, very clearly, people are set apart for God as family units. Uh, the, the command to Abraham to circumcise his, his, his sons, uh, this, is a, this is a family thing. Uh, and this continues in the New Testament. The church is the family of God, the household of God. And so we have all of this covenant language uh, that, that comes out in the New Testament, and I just don't see how 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and that specific issue 
of the believing spouse needs to remain because the children are holy, I don't see how you can understand that apart from this this covenant concept, that God makes a covenant with parents, with the church, with the children uh, of, of those believers. Now, so, so those are just two of the passages. I mean, there, there's, uh, there's others. But I guess what I would like to say at least, what, what I hope that we can agree on, is that at least we're not coming up with this because we all secretly want to be Roman Catholic. Uh, this has got nothing to do with Roman Catholicism. <laughs> it's got not, and, and this is one of the, one of the common, uh, uh, attacks that, that's made on the position of covenant baptism is that, uh, we're just holdovers from Roman Catholics. And, and that's not the case at all. We believe that scripture teaches that the children, uh, of Believers are to be baptized. So I said I was hoping to finish this chapter. I'm not. Um, but let me at least finish us with section 5. And that is an important point. Because again, here's where I think people uh, misunderstand each other. And, and I think this goes both ways. We refer to the Baptist, quote-unquote, position as believer's baptism. Does that mean that every adult who is dipped in water is going to heaven? No. Baptists don't say that. We call it believer's baptism, but they're not saying every single person who's been immersed is going to heaven. They're saying they've made that profession. But they're not, they're, they're recognizing that the sign and the reality should line up (laughs) but often don't. And the confession says the exact same thing. Although it's a great sin to condemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. So when we place that mark upon our children, we're not saying, here, look, this child is born again. We're not saying that. We're saying this is a sign, and our children are called to grow up into the reality that that signifies. Uh, But that this sign is properly given to the children. Uh, And that's where just a couple of passages there uh, are, are kind of our biblical touchstone, but we've got a number of others. I am, however, out of time. Uh, so if there are any other comments or questions, uh, I can take them. Yes. That, that's an excellent question. So, if baptism is not inexorably annexed 
to regenerate. Well, that's, yeah, that's a good answer is that God said to do it. Uh, <laughs> but for either person, I think this is what Paul does in Colossians 2. Um, whether these are adults who have been baptized or whether these are covenant children who have been baptized, in Colossians 2, Paul says, you need to look at that and you need to live that out. Uh, in baptism, you are identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Stop, I mean, stop going to prostitutes. Stop doing crazy stuff. Uh, stop doing this ridiculous, sinful nonsense that you guys are doing. Don't you know you've been washed? <laughs> and and so it, it serves as a sign uh, both to the individual who has been baptized as well as to the community uh, that in the same way that circumcision did. Uh, these are people that are set apart. These are set apart for God. They're not to behave to behave like the world. So, so just as a practical example, I stole this from Matthew Henry, uh, who was not a Presbyterian, uh, but did follow, did, did believe that Scripture teaches infant baptism. And Matthew Henry says that his father, when he was a child, used to grab him by the handle of his baptism. Uh, and I love that imagery. I love that uh, that imagery, and I've tried to incorporate that in my own child rearing. Uh, is to say, you know, when my children are behaving as little heathens, which little kids do, big kids do too, grown ups do for that matter. <laughs> but when they're behaving like little hellions, uh, I, I say, listen, you can't do this. You can't speak to your mama that way. You can't treat your brother that way. You can't treat your sister. You can't treat God's creation this way. You've been claimed by Christ. You're not allowed to just wander off and be a hellion. Uh, you're Christ's. You belong to him. You need to live up to that. You need to grow into it. But but it becomes this this mark that, that we grab hold of uh, and say, you belong to Christ. He placed his mark on you. You don't have the choice of whether to be a heathen or a Christian. You have the choice whether to be an apostate or a Christian. <laughs> an apostasy is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Uh, so that that's does that answer the question? Yes. Yeah. I I, I would go comfortably with that. And, yes, I would agree with all that, and Jesus commanded us to do it. Right. And we don't do them. Yes, 
Yeah, so I would say probably baptism is the first of the things you're said you're you're called to do. But also, you know, uh, church membership, uh, sitting under the means of grace, uh, worshiping uh, regularly, those things are things that are expected. So, okay, let me close because my wife has waved the imaginary watch too many times. Father, thank you for this sign and seal of your washing us, your grace in our lives. Uh, Help us, Lord, to reflect that and to reflect on that. In Christ's name, amen.